So for over 17 years, this organization has worked to shape and lead the conversations uh, about building a better, more prosperous future for Canada and our world. Today's speakers and all of you are an example of the kind of community of leaders that we've been able to build together. And I want to thank you for sharing your unique insights and ideas as people who believe that government can and must be a force for good. Our next speaker has dedicated his life and career to this work, and especially to building the clean growth economy that Canada's future is counting on. And we're fortunate that he could take time to join us to take stock of where we stand at such a pivotal moment for Canada's net zero policy and leadership. Without any further ado, please join me in giving a very warm Canada 2020 welcome to Canada's Minister of Energy and Natural Resources, Jonathan Wilkinson. Thank you. Merci. Bienvenue à tous. C'est un plaisir d'être ici aujourd'hui. I would uh, like to just begin by acknowledging that this event is taking place on the traditional ancestral territories of the Anishinaabe Algonquin people. We talk a lot about climate change these days. Certainly, you have been talking about that today, and for obvious reasons. Climate change is altering our world's natural environment in a myriad of different ways. It is also rapidly transforming the global economy and global finance in ways that are creating enormous economic opportunities for those who approach the transition to a low-carbon future in a thoughtful, determined, and focused manner. The global energy transformation, which is already well underway, is both an environmental imperative, no doubt, to protect the future of the planet, but it is also an economic opportunity on a scale not dissimilar to the Industrial Revolution. In releasing the World Energy Outlook 2023 last week, Dr. Barral, the Executive Director of the International Energy Agency, stated, the transition to clean energy is happening worldwide and it is unstoppable. It is not just a question of if, it is just a matter of how soon. La plupart des Canadiens sont en effet préoccupés par les changements climatiques, mais ils s'inquiètent également de leur situation économique et veulent s'assurer que même et leurs enfants auront de bons emplois et des opportunités économiques à l'avenir. Pour que le Canada puisse saisir les opportunités extraordinaires créées par la transition vers une économie net zéro, nous devons accepter les réalités du changement climatique et veiller à ce que cette prise de conscience informe et fasse les fondements de la stratégie économique de notre pays. I am here to tell you today that for Canada to seize the enormous economic opportunities that can be created through a transition to a net zero economy, we must accept the realities of climate change and ensure that this realization informs and shapes the fundamentals of our country's economic strategy. Today, I want to talk a little bit about how we are building a better Canada through the thoughtful and strategic development and implementation of a green economic plan for the present and for the future. A plan based not on wishful thinking, a plan that takes the world as it is, accepts the future that seems most likely, and looks to make it work to help our people and our companies seize the opportunities that are indeed before us. Such opportunities are already increasingly being reflected in consumer and industrial behavior. Consider this. In 2020, one in 25 vehicles sold worldwide were zero-emission vehicles. That number jumped all the way to one in five last year. That is an amazing statistic. More than 500 gigawatts of renewable generation capacity are set to be added by 2023, or in 2023, and more than a billion dollars a day, U.S., is being spent on solar deployment. 
Going forward, the IEA projects that by 2030, almost half of the world's electricity supply will come from renewables, and 80% of all new electric capacity from now to 2030 will be renewable. It projects that 50% of U.S. car registrations will be electric, and that heat pumps and other electric heating systems will outsell fossil fuel boilers. Partout dans le monde, les entreprises, les syndicats et les gouvernements se lancent dans une course à la réduction des émissions de carbone et à la saisie des, des extraordinaires opportunités économiques qui découleront de la transition vers un avenir à faible émission de carbone. The transition is being fueled by global financial markets that are increasingly playing a shift to lower carbon through the investment decisions that they are making. Successful businesses, as many of you will know, must interpret and adapt to changes in the business environment in which they operate. It's what their shareholders expect. It's what their employees depend upon. Governments are no different to effectively see, uh, serve their citizens. They must also be capable of responding to changing circumstances and to taking decisive actions. Increasingly, governments around the world, friends and competitors, are taking action. Our make American friends are making massive investments in growing a green economy through the Inflation Reduction Act. Similarly, the European Union, Japan, Australia are putting into place strategies for accelerating clean economic growth. And beyond democratic friends, countries like China are also moving very, very strategically. In 2022, China accounted for around half of wind and solar additions uh, worldwide, as well as over half of global electric vehicle sales. And China presently dominates supply chains for critical minerals around the world. China has made a major bet on the energy transition and aims to be a leader in the technologies that are going to be central to such a transition. This is something that really must be a wake-up call for those politicians in Western countries that continue to believe that future prosperity lies in simply pursuing pathways that the energy transition fundamentally is disrupting as we speak. La bonne nouvelle, c'est que le Canada est extrêmement bien placé pour saisir les opportunités qui seront cruciales dans la transition vers le monde à faible émission de carbone. Successful strategies leverage comparative advantages, and Canada has a lot going for it to help us win on a global scale. We have a well-educated and highly trained workforce. We have vast natural resources that are increasingly in demand. We have innovative energy and clean technology companies, technologies and expertise, trade agreements with major economies around the world, banking, political, legal and regulatory systems that are stable and predictable. What Canada needs at this moment in our history is a thoughtful and ambitious economic strategy that ties it all together, one that will create wealth and good jobs in every region of this country. This is something that your federal government has been focused on since it was elected to office in 2015. Canada's Green Economic Plan has five pillars. The first is to identify and aggressively pursue those areas of economic opportunity that will be significant areas of growth as we move towards a lower carbon future. Areas like critical minerals up and down the value chain, hydrogen and hydrogen production technologies, carbon capture, renewable electricity, biofuels and biomass, and nuclear technology and supply chains. The path to net zero by 2050 and the economic prosperity that it brings will look different in every country around the world. And likewise, it will look different in every region of Canada. It is net zero petrochemical facilities in Alberta. It is hydrogen production facilities in British Columbia, Nova Scotia, and Newfoundland. It is low emission potash mines and rare earth processing in Saskatchewan. 
Il s'agit de la fabrication de véhicules électriques en Ontario et de la fabrication de batteries au Québec. Canada is blessed with enormous potential, opportunities that can be realized in such a future. In fact, I would suggest that Canada is one of the most advantaged countries in the world. Potential is, though, only potential. But we need thoughtful collaboration between industry, labor, indigenous leaders, and levels of government if we are to realize our full potential. If we are to create the hundreds of thousands of jobs and the economic prosperity that is very much within our reach. The second pillar of Canada's green economic plan is a thoughtful policy approach to Canada's oil and gas resources, resources that have contributed much to the Canadian economy over many, many years. Forecasts suggest that global demand for oil and gas will decline within 10 years and will continue to decline as lower carbon technologies are deployed in greater numbers. So this transition away from the combustion of fossil fuels is already underway, and it will take place over the course of the next three decades. It is important to be aware that how oil will be used is going to change. Post-2050, we will not use significant amounts of oil in combustion applications like cars and buses. Where we will, though, use it is in non-combustion applications such as petrochemicals, lubricants, solvents, and carbon graphite. And for such applications, reasonable volumes of oil will continue to be required even in a net-zero world. Similarly, for natural gas, uses will exist beyond 2050 in non-combustion applications such as the production of ultra-low carbon hydrogen. At the end of the day, the most significant cause of climate change, as you folks know very well, are carbon emissions from the production and from the combustion of fossil fuels. We clearly need to move to eliminate the unabated combustion of fossil fuels over the period between now and 2050. We also need to focus on the elimination of emissions relating to production to ensure that those volumes of oil and gas that continue to be used post-2050 in non-combustion or in abated combustion applications are compatible with a net-zero future. During the coming 30-year period of transition and beyond 2050, when we have largely eliminated fossil fuel combustion, countries that focus on producing hydrocarbons with ultra-low production emissions will have the opportunity to grow share in what will be a declining market. Aggressive action to reduce emissions from the production of oil and gas is thus critical for the competitiveness of any producing country that wishes its resources to be relevant in the future. Hence, this government's focus on decarbonization of our oil and gas sector, it is ultimately about short and long-term competitiveness. The third pillar of Canada's economic plan is to build more clean power, a lot more clean power. It is not just about decarbonizing the grid as it stands today, although that is important. It is about having the capacity to electrify transportation and buildings to get at other sources of emissions. It is about being able to switch industrial processes to clean energy so that Air Products, Dow, Janssen, Green Steel and Aluminum, Volkswagen, increasingly are going to demand clean power as the price of entry. Companies increasingly have to account for the carbon that is embedded in the products that they actually produce. That is true across the board. And so we are facing a challenge, which is, yes, we have to decarbonize the grid, but we also need a much, much larger grid, probably more than double by 2050. Le quatrième, le quatrième pilier du plan économique vert du Canada est l'engagement significatif à la participation active des Autochtones. Le gouvernement du Canada s'est engagé à faire progresser la réconciliation dans l'ensemble du pays. Le secteur des ressources naturelles en fait partie. This is an important matter from a social justice perspective, no doubt. 
but it is also required if we are to align interests with respect to project development moving forward. And finally, we must make more efficient and effective our regulatory and permitting processes without cutting corners from an environmental perspective, without cutting corners in terms of engaging and consulting with Indigenous communities. But it cannot, just cannot, take us 15 years in this country to develop new mines, not if we want to successfully prosecute the energy transition through the deployment of electric vehicles. We are doing significant work internally, some of it very simple stuff around adequately resourcing the agencies to ensure that they can actually move forward uh, and uh, projects are not waiting, but looking at how we can do things concurrently rather than doing them consecutively. We also have committed to bring forward additional measures uh, before the end of the year, and we will be doing so, and we are working actively with provinces and territories to have better regulatory alignment such that companies are not having to do two things um, two different processes uh, in order to actually prosecute the same, the same project. We also must ensure that we respond expeditiously to the recent opinion of the Supreme Court of Canada to ensure clarity and certainty for project proponents and investors. We intend to introduce legislative amendments to the law as soon as possible. Les cinq piliers que j'ai décrits sont à la base d'une stratégie économique verte fondée sur les ressources naturelles et l'exploitation des ressources qui favorisa l'emploi, la compétitivité et la prospérité économique des Canadiens dans un avenir à faible émission de carbone, alors que, durant la période 2015-2022, ce gouvernement a consacré 120 milliards de dollars à ce travail, le budget 2023 représente un engagement générationnel en faveur d'un programme de croissance propre. Budget 2023 committed an additional $86 billion to accelerating clean growth and ensuring Canadian competitiveness. And we are beginning to see significant economic progress from these investments right across the country. In Newfoundland, Brea Fuels is converting its refinery to renewable diesel. Uh, World Energy is actively pursuing hydrogen-related opportunities. In Nova Scotia, Everwind Fuels recently received approval to build North America's first facility to produce hydrogen from renewables. In Quebec and Ontario, we are seeing massive investments in the entirety of the electrical vehicle value chain. In Saskatchewan, BHP is constructing the largest and one of the lowest emission potash mines in the world. And in fact, just this morning, BHP announced a second phase of that project, which is a $6.4 billion project, which will be enabled through work that the federal government is committed to do with BHP to have access to clean energy. Alberta is leading the country in developing wind and solar, and companies in Alberta are developing low-carbon industrial facilities like Air Products Low Carbon Hydrogen Facility. And in BC, Tidewater's renewable diesel refinery completed construction earlier this year, Canada's first renewable diesel refinery. Investments like these ones and the jobs and prosperity they are creating do not happen by chance. They are enabled by a comprehensive approach that includes a suite of regulations like the clean fuels regulation, by incentives like the clean investment tax credits, by investments and by other important policy signals, very much including the price on pollution. Elles sont rendues possibles par un plan réfléchi, stratégique et audacieux axé sur la construction d'une économie qui prospérera dans un monde à faible émission de carbone. I would suggest that Canadians be wary of folks who tell us that a comprehensive plan for the future is not required to position Canada's economy for success. Simple policy prescriptions and slogans like technology, not taxes, are taglines. They are not a strategy and they are not a plan. As a former clean tech CEO myself, I can say definitively that 
Technology itself will not drive billions of dollars in new investments and bring new opportunities to countless communities. One must have the conditions in place to enable technology development, to enable demonstration, and to enable commercial deployment. And that is exactly what Canada's Green Economic Plan does. By way of closing, c'est à nous, en tant que pays, de faire des choix intelligents. Et nous avons le choix. We have the choice. We can choose to lead by recognizing where the world is heading and aggressively pursuing major areas of economic opportunity. Or we can bury our heads in the sand, pretend that the world is not moving rapidly towards a cleaner and greener future, eroding our competitiveness and our long-term prosperity. I call the first choice a green economic plan for the present and for the future, one that is thoughtful, one that is relevant, one that is strategic. And I call the second simply hoping for the best, taking what I would suggest is a tragic gamble with the future of the planet and with Canada's current and its future prosperity. Ladies and gentlemen, any thoughtful person, I think, must conclude that we simply must choose to lead. Je vous remercie de m'avoir invité ici, and uh, I look forward to uh, the conversation with my friend Lisa Ray. So. Thank you so much for that, Minister. We really appreciate you sharing that look ahead, at both ahead of COP28 and in so much of Canada's context of leadership on this right now. I am pleased to bring up a former Minister of Natural Resources and Labor and Transportation to help get into some of those questions in more detail, and I'll invite the Minister back up to the stage again. Please give a warm welcome to the Minister and the former Minister. Thank you. The hot seat. <laughs> that was a very good speech, Minister. Thank you very much. Thank you. I know everyone appreciates it. So something happened this week. <laughs> Is there an elephant in the room? Got a lot. No, 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 no. That got a lot of attention. And look, we've if you've been a minister, you've been put in a position where you have to answer to policy decisions that are popular slash unpopular. But I'm wondering if you can walk us through the decision that was made with respect to the carbon tax coming off of home heating oil. Sure. So, uh, I mean, and you will know, having been from Nova Scotia, heating oil has been a, a challenge. Um, particularly in Atlantic Canada, but not only in Atlantic Canada, in, in rural areas of this country for a long time. Mm -hmm. Heating oil is different from other ways of heating our homes in the sense that it is, uh, on average, more than double the cost of natural gas. Um, and in some provinces, it's three to four times the cost of natural gas. And it is primarily focused um, in, in areas that tend to be lower income. So energy poverty is a real challenge for people, particularly people who are many of the folks that are on home heating. That is obviously a challenge at, at this point in time because we are facing affordability uh, challenges across the board and across uh, every province and territory in Canada. And so in that context, um, we made the decision, yes, to remove the price, but to do so in the context for, for a period of three years. But to do that in the context of actually moving toward is a, what is a much better solution from a climate perspective and what is a much better solution from an affordability perspective. So we are putting a lot more money into the deployment of heat pumps mm -hmm. um, for folks that are on heating oil. Those heat pumps will be free in provinces that step up to partner with, uh, with provinces and territory or with federal government. Um, right now that includes PEI, Nova Scotia and Newfoundland Laboratory, but, but it's open to every province and territory in this country. Um, so it was a way to go at what is a, 
a critical issue from an affordability perspective in a manner that actually will help long-term affordability and will actually help us with the climate challenge because, of course, heating oil is far more polluting than, uh, than natural gas. And I assume the free heat pump comes if you're transitioning out of fuel, not if you already have electric baseboard as your, as your main place. So. so, yeah, so there are a couple of, of different programs. This program is focused primarily on people who use heating oil and you are transitioning to a heat pump. Um, but there are other programs. We have a green buildings program at Natural Resources Canada, and we also have a, a $40,000 zero interest loan that is run out of CMHC. Um, and both of those are available to people to do upgrades, whether you have natural gas or home heating. So if you have natural gas, you can actually get access to the grants in the greener buildings programs or the loan to actually do upgrades to your home. And there's a method to my madness because I put a heat pump in in my Cape Breton place a couple of years ago. Um, but I'm not I'm not going to be eligible for it, but I'm wondering what happens to the people who already did the right thing and converted? Is there a retroactivity associated with this? <laughs> Unfortunately for you, no. Uh, no, not for me. I don't get it. I, I already have. No, I mean, th this is the challenge that you always run into. It's like it's like the challenge where, you know, the government of Manitoba wants us to give credit um, for the hydroelectric dams that were built 40 years ago. I mean, at a certain point, you have to start from a baseline. Um, and from our perspective, it's actually really about future deployment of, of, uh, of these things to actually address affordability and the climate issue. So, yes, if somebody put a heat pump in three months ago, um, then they wouldn't have access to this program, although they very likely did have access to the Greener Homes program, which right. is a bit less generous. But still, uh, the government provides $5,000 grants. Because you don't want to punish people who did the right thing. You do not. Because that would be bad at the, ba at the ballot box. <laughs> Maybe a little bit. I want to dig uh, a little bit deeper. So in uh, in a couple of weeks, perhaps, but it's going through Senate right now, Bill C-234, and that has to do with removing the carbon tax for agriculture purposes. The Liberals voted against it. The NDP and the Conservatives agreed on something. Megan Leslie, where are you? It was a shocking moment, wasn't it? I know. <laughs> and, they decided to, and they decided to pass it. It's gone into the Senate. It's got an amendment. What's going to happen when it comes back to the floor of the House of Commons, given what you have just done in terms of home heating oil, do the farmers not deserve a break? Well, the farmers actually do get a break, uh, and there is actually a rebate that's associated with, uh, with agricultural stuff. Um, what I would say is the price on pollution is a critical part of the climate plan. It actually accounts for close to a third of emissions reductions by 2030. Um, and uh, and I, I would tell you that our intention when it comes back to the House is we will vote against it. There will be no more um, exemptions. This was a very particular case for a very challenging circumstance, but there will be no more exemptions. Okay, and um, I always wanted to ask you this, and may have asked you this before, why do you have energy in your title now? Because <laughs> Anne and I are very jealous. We're still just natural resources ministers. Uh, it was really intended to, to reflect the fact that energy um, is so fundamental to the conversations we're having around the world these days, whether it's around energy security, it's around the energy transition, and, uh, and Canada was the only G7 country that did not have an energy minister. I mean, notionally, it resided in Intercan, but there was no title that actually reflected right. that. Yeah. Um, and so the decision that we made was it, it really needed to connote how central it is to all of the work that we are doing across the board in almost every area uh, of the economy. Um, and uh, and so that was fundamentally the thinking, not dissimilar to when, when uh, we were elected in 2015, we added Department of Environment and Climate Change. Right, right. Okay. Um, so in March of last year, President Biden came to Canada and there were some agreements made. There was a great communique. 
One of the things that was set up was the Energy Transformation Task Force, and it has a one-year, one-year window. I know you were at a meeting in October, but I'm not hearing a lot out of it. Like, what's going on? Are we moving somewhere? Is it going anywhere with the United States? It is. Uh, I was actually at the White House last week uh, on this. That's that's a flex. Yeah. Well done. <laughs> Um, it is it is led by uh, Minister Freeland um, and uh, on the American side by Amos Hochstein, who is the uh, advisor to Biden on this. Um, and and we've got a number of areas where we are actually doing some pretty active work. Uh, some of it relates to critical minerals, and and we're looking at the potential for partnerships from an investment perspective between the government of Canada and the United States in some of the more critical areas. We are doing a lot of work on the nuclear uh, fuel cycle. Um, there are some things that the Americans can and want to do that we either can't or we don't want to do. And there are things that we want to do here um, that, uh, that the Americans um, you know, would be happy to see us do. And so there's a whole conversation going on around that. Um, there are a number of other things, but I would say critical minerals and nuclear are probably the highest uh, priority items. And we do intend to drive to some deliverables by, uh, by because you, you do have a timeline. We do have a timeline. No. Um, so you mentioned critical minerals. Uh, we It's great that we announce EV plants. It's great that we announce um, the assembly, the battery stuff. But, you know, you mentioned it. Opening a mine is pretty tough. But I'm not. I'm going to go two different places on this. The first one is, as was pointed out earlier today, that the roads to resources go through Indigenous lands. And I want to know, Minister, can you promise me, <laughs> promise me that we're going to have federal Indigenous loan guarantees sometime in November? Um, so you, you probably need to pitch that question to Christopher Freeland. But um, but I would say, look, we've been working on, on a program for Indigenous loan guarantees now for quite some time. Um, and we, we actually appointed a, an expert group um, about a year ago to do a lot of the work uh, external to the department to help us think our way through this. There are examples out there. The government of Alberta in particular has done a lot of work in this area and has their own uh, loan guarantee program. Uh, I am very optimistic that we will uh, be able to move this forward. And as I said in my speech, that is partly an issue around social justice. Like if we're going to be building major projects in traditional territories, there need to be long-term benefits that flow back to the communities that exist there. But it's also about aligning interests. I mean, at the end yeah. of the day, we are we are done with the days when, um, you know, a mining company comes into the traditional territory of a particular First Nation and says, you know, we're going to give you six jobs and two procurement contracts and you should be happy with that. Exactly. Um, so I am very optimistic. Um, you will have to stay tuned, but I'm very optimistic that we will make progress on it. Yeah. And I'm going to dig a little deeper. Uh, will there be the same carve out for any fossil fuel related projects? So... <laughs> There are no lots said of this was be an going. Easy. There are you asked me to do this. So. <laughs> you may regret your your wish to have me interview you now. So. <laughs> Too late. Anne's dealing with Seamus later. It's going to be ugly. So um, that is obviously a very active conversation. Um, so obviously part of what we are trying to do with the loan guarantee program is um, catalyze the a lot of the projects that are part of the energy transition. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But there is also the case that there are lots of indigenous communities that are interested in participating in existing assets. Yeah. Um, and so we are trying to strike a balance okay. um, in that context. I appreciate that. That's a different than what you told me in July. So that makes <laughs> me happy. has evolved. So. No, that's a, and, and so has your policy on carbon tax too, it seems. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. 
I want to go back for a second to Atlantic Canada, Minister. Um, Atlantic Loop, uh, that's a really important project. Yep. That's a really important project for electrification and, my, and for a source of stable power, actually, in the maritime, since they're growing. Lots of immigration happening there, lots of business. Can you give us an update where we are? Sure. Um, so uh, you kind of have to start by how did the Atlantic Loop actually, um, how did the conversation start? And it actually came from Atlantic Canada. It yeah. came actually mainly from Stephen McNeil when he was yeah. premier in Nova Scotia. And the idea was that you would build this uh, this um, transmission grid um, that would enable the wheeling of power from Quebec into Atlantic Canada that would help Atlantic Canada to retire coal plants and eventually be able to get to a, a net zero grid. Mm -hmm. um, there are a number of things that have happened in the interim um, that I think have changed the equation quite significantly. One is that Quebec is finding that it is, is not um, as electricity rich as perhaps it thought it was even five, 10 years ago. And that they are actually now looking at adding incremental generation capacity in Quebec just to meet their own needs. Mm -hmm. So the idea of wheeling power into Atlantic Canada is less attractive for Quebec and it's less attractive for Atlantic Canada because they can't be sure that they're actually going to get the electricity when they need it. Right. There's also the fact that, you know, um, not surprisingly, that as they move closer to this conversation, the Atlantic provinces started to get more interested in actually self-generation because that creates local economic development yep. rather than simply wheeling power in. And so they took the, the view, and, and I would say the third piece of it is, this was supposed to be about helping them get off coal, but increasingly it became evident um, to us and to them that you couldn't actually build the loop by 2030 anyway. So it wouldn't help you with your 2030 date with respect to getting off coal. So we sat down with Nova Scotia and New Brunswick um, and um, said, let's work together on a plan that will enable you to get off coal. It may include some elements of the loop, and then we'll work on a second phase that may include other elements of the loop, because the loop can still be very valuable yes. from a stability perspective, okay. from being able to actually stabilize the grid. It actually, strangely enough, may end up being quite useful for Nova Scotia to export power to Quebec, um, based on all of the renewables work that's going on in Nova Scotia. Mm -hmm. So that's a second phase. And so the Premier of Nova Scotia and the Premier of New Brunswick came here two weeks ago, we signed an agreement whereby we will work with them to actually support the plans that they have developed to essentially get off coal. They're different. In Nova Scotia, it relies a lot on uh, wind and on batteries. Yeah. Um, in, in New Brunswick, it actually will involve the conversion of the Beldoon coal plant to biomass, and okay. they will use locally sourced biomass. So, uh, so I think it, 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 it is, and, and there is one part of the Atlantic Loop with it, it will be built as part of phase one that will actually help to strengthen the ability to share power between the two provinces. So I think it's, it's uh, responding as we should to the, the needs and the desires of those provinces. But the loop is still on the table in the context of both a piece of it in the front end and a second phase where we may actually end up building it in the longer term. But we now have plans with both of those provinces to get off coal by 2030, and both have actually accepted that the clean electricity reg can be met by 2035. Okay, sounds good. I look forward to seeing my power bill out there. <laughs> sure, it'll be fine. Um, Minister, flipping out now to, to the western part of our country, where you are from, um, contracts for differences and carbon capture, where are we on all that? So we are uh, continuing to work with uh, the Pathways folks on carbon capture. Um, I think I think I saw Mark Cameron here. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, and I think those conversations are going well. I think there's still work that has to be done. There are earlier carbon capture projects that probably will get going before um, the Pathways stuff. Mm -hmm. So um, people will be aware. Capital Power is looking uh, at 
at doing a, a project, Heidelberg Cement is right. looking at doing a project. Yeah. Um, so I think we are we are making good progress on that. It is related to the contracts for difference. Um, the uh, the Canada Growth Fund announced its first investment last week, and they are actually working very hard on the contracts for difference. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they they hope to have something to say uh, around some of those things in the not too distant future. Um, and uh, to be honest, I think the thinking on on CCFDs has actually evolved a lot, and I think we're actually getting to a much more a much clearer space about how we're going to proceed with that. So. Okay, that's good. Um, for Canada Growth Fund, I'm glad you mentioned that. Is that going to be available for technologies that are up and coming, like Fusion, for example? Potentially. Um, so it is meant to catalyze um, equity investment. Their, their uh, mandate involves being able to take sort of make concessional equity um, investments to catalyze more private sector investment or or um, debt. Um, they just made it a the announcement they made last week was in Calgary and it was for a geothermal company. Right. Um, I think the, the question for the growth fund will be just where where are these things at in terms of stage of development and how much risk are they willing to take? And I think that's something that they are working through. They are they are required not necessarily to um, be a fund that actually uh, adds to its capital, but they're also not supposed to lose it. So so there's a, yeah, there's a balance there. That's true. And in the last two seconds, on a scale of one to 10, how's your relationship with the provinces right now? <laughs> you know, it's funny. Um, and Sonia Savage is sitting right here. So. <laughs> I, I saw Sonia last week in Calgary. We were just talking about this, actually. So um, actually, for most of the provinces, it is very good. Yeah. Uh, I would say in all of Atlantic Canada, I have very, very strong relationships with all of the provinces. Mm-hmm. With the government of Quebec, it actually is very good. Um, I would tell you with Ontario, it is very, very good. Todd Smith is a great counterpart. And yeah. Premier, Premier Ford has also been uh, very collaborative in this space. Um, Manitoba is brand new. Um, British Columbia, obviously, that they, they've been one of our closest partners. So you get focused on Saskatchewan and Alberta. And, you know, the unfortunate reality of politics is sometimes there's a lot of noise. Um, and I don't mean this with any disrespect to, to, to Premier Smith, but there's a lot of things that are being said right now that are quite different from the reality of what is happening at the Canada-Alberta Working Group. We set this up to try to have non-political conversations, largely driven at this stage by senior civil servants and led by my deputy minister and and uh, the deputy minister of energy in Alberta. That table has actually been making enormous progress, mm-hmm. um, especially on things like the clean electricity reg. Um, you wouldn't know that from the public discourse. I try not to respond to a lot of those things because I actually think that things are generally working reasonably well. Um, I would say that the, the biggest challenge um, in terms of relationships is, is with Saskatchewan. And I say that with, with great sorrow because I grew up in Saskatoon. I worked for a distinguished premier of Saskatchewan for many years. Um, but Saskatchewan, um, for whatever reason, has chosen the path of just not even wanting to, to begin to collaborate. I, I was in Saskatoon um, just a month or so ago, a couple months ago. Um, we, we told the government of Saskatchewan that they had applied for $75 million for pre-development work for a small modular reactor. Yeah. And, uh, and so I called my counterpart and I said, we've approved it. And $75 million is a lot of money um, in the context of a province of 1 million people. It, it would be the equivalent of us giving a billion dollars to the province of Ontario. Um, and, uh, and my counterpart, who is a super, super nice guy, um, was very excited. And then he, uh, and I said, we'd like to do the announcement in Saskatoon at the University of Saskatchewan at the nuclear facility. 
He was very excited. He called the premier's office and they told him that they weren't allowed to come to the announcement. And so I ended up in this weird situation, announcing money that SAS Power had asked for, giving it to the government of Saskatchewan with nobody from the government of Saskatchewan there. So I just think sometimes we have to be able to park our political differences, especially in areas where we don't disagree. There are lots of areas in Saskatchewan where we are in full alignment, whether that's the foreign mining project, the Saskatchewan rarest processing, the BHP announcement with the Janssen mine, yeah. the, the work they're doing on small melt modular reactors, park the, the political stuff, and we can actually make progress. And, and I think that's the most disappointing thing for me, particularly as somebody who still feels very close to that province. Okay, and we are over, but I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you one last thing. Uh, BC is currently consulting on their cap on oil and gas emissions. You guys are consulting on a cap on oil and gas emissions. What happens if they're not the same? <laughs> well, we are talking to them, um, for sure. Uh, and um, I think that, that they are sort of heading in the same direction. Um, at the end of the day, though, uh, just as with the, the methane regs, um, if you were going to have provincial systems to implement, they would have to be equivalent. Um, with the methane regs, we negotiate an equivalency agreement actually actually with Sonia um, um, on, on methane, and Alberta actually implemented that. Same thing was true with Saskatchewan. The same thing would have to be true with the cap. Um, I do think that, um, you know, depending on the, the form of the cap that you're implementing, it can be probably more efficient to do it at a national level, but um, that is a conversation that we will be having or are having with DC. Okay, and there is a private member's bill from a MP from Kitchener, Green Party, not yours, who is advocating for a windfall tax for oil and gas companies. How are you guys going to vote? <laughs> well, as you know, once once the government takes a decision, you vote with the government, and I don't think the government's taken a decision. But what I would say is um, it is important that all sectors of the economy are paying their fair share. No question about that. Um, and that very much includes the oil and gas sector. But the one thing that I think a lot of folks do not understand about the oil and gas sector is there is already effectively a windfall tax in the form of the taxation system that exists in Alberta. Um, it actually escalates as you make more money. And uh, and so it would kind of be a windfall tax on a windfall tax. Okay. Um, uh, but, you know, I, I'm not going to I'm not going to uh, to categorically say we will never do that. Um, but but I do think people need to be aware that there are some base sort of facts here that are probably useful to understand. Thank you, Minister, for taking the extra time. I really appreciate it. I'm sure the room appreciates your answers too. Great. Thank you.